29 through 39. Hear the words of the gospel. As soon as they left, they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought him all sick or possessed with demons. And the whole was gathered, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while very he up and went out to the deserted place, and there prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to bring town, so that I may proclaim message there also, for this is what to do. He went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogue and casting out demons. The word of God, together we say, thanks be to God. Vertigo is setting in now as I ascend these stairs to heaven. It's always fun getting to preach from this place where I know so many wonderful preachers have proclaimed the gospel. Anytime I stand here, I'm just reminded of the great cloud of witnesses of all those incredible people who have come and brought the word to us as I will try to do this morning. So will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I love games. I love playing games. I love card games. I love board games. I love video games. I love to play sports. However, as I have said in the past, my athletic prowess is subpar at best. But I still love playing every sport there is. I'm just not any good at any of them. I've always loved games, but my favorite game as a child was a game called Sardines. I don't know if you've ever heard of this game, Sardines. It's basically hide-and-go-seek in reverse. The same premise is, you know, part of the game where someone hides and others seek. However, as opposed to everyone hiding and one person seeking, there's one person hiding and everyone is seeking I don't know why I love this game so much. Maybe it was because I'm so extroverted that the idea of being isolated, hiding for any long period of time is excruciating to me, to know I have to spend that much time by myself being quiet so that I can't be found. Maybe it's the camaraderie, but we used to play all the time in my youth group at First Methodist in Dothan. We play at the church, we play on mission trips, we play whenever we would do night games like capture the flag, and we play nighttime sardines. And the reason why it's called sardines, and not reverse hide and go seek, is because when one person hides and everyone tries to find them, the goal is not when they're found to then for the round to be over. When you find the person who is hiding, you then also join them in the hiding. And so if they decide to hide in a small space, when five or ten people find this hidden person, you end up being packed in there like sardines. I find it um, apropos that we spent so much of our childhood playing games that involved seeking and searching after hidden or obfuscated things and friends. Hide and go seek and sardines. I spy. We used to have the Where's Waldo books. 
We spent so much of my childhood searching for things, but I feel like I also spend a lot of my adult life searching for things. I feel like much of my life has been a constant experience of seeking after things and searching for new things. Often after when I found what I want, I begin my search for something new. When I was in high school, I was seeking after my high school degree so I could go to college and seek after a college degree and then a master's. And now I'm halfway through my doctorate and don't know what comes next, but I'm sure I'll find something else to seek. When I was in seminary, I was seeking to be commissioned. Once I was commissioned, I was seeking to be ordained. When I was single, I was searching for someone I could fall in love with and marry. And I can say that that is one area I definitely found way more than I expected to. And my search abruptly ended in 2011 when Brianna and I started dating. But maybe you're in the same boat as me. Maybe you're constantly searching after things in your own life. You've made it to one level of a job, and so now it's time to pursue the next level of that job. You've moved into a certain size home and now you're on Zillow searching for that next size home. You've worked your entire life and now you're searching for what to do in retirement. Maybe all of a sudden you realize that you've acquired or accomplished all the things that you had set out for your life, yet there's still an emptiness, like something's missing. And so like the great philosopher Bono, we've climbed the highest mountains, we've run through the fields, but we still haven't found what we're looking for. Okay, Bono's probably not a great philosopher, but I really like you too, and so it kind of fit. I think our scripture lesson today has something to say about this idea of searching. And I will be honest, there is so much in this gospel lesson I considered focusing my sermon on, and so to not neglect the other verses, we could have spent the entirety of the sermon this morning talking about the healing of Simon Peter's mother-in-law and how this was Jesus's first physical healing, and it wasn't even requested by Simon, but upon Jesus entering the home, he saw her ailment and took it upon his divine initiative to remove her sickness. We could focus on the fact that this text points out that the sun had set, and it was indicating the end of the Sabbath, and this is why it says the entire city flooded this home. Jesus was not supposed to do healings on the Sabbath or people were not supposed to leave their homes on the Sabbath. And that is why the text makes sure to point out when the sun set, then everybody flocked to where Jesus was, despite the fact that just a little later, Jesus tells us he's the Lord of the Sabbath. There's a most fascinating point in this passage about the fact the demons knew who Jesus was, but Jesus ordered them not to say anything to anyone. The disciples had not yet come around to figuring out who Jesus was, but the demons already knew, further propagating the messianic secret of Mark, which is so concerned with maintaining Jesus's secret identity. We could also settle in on the fact that before and after ministry, Jesus has to retreat for solitude and prayer. As Robbins just talked about in our children's moment, prayer was so important to Jesus and it's a theme that comes up a great deal in the book of Mark that Jesus often retreats to a mountain or retreats away to a deserted place to pray. And it's kind of a paradox, is it not? That in the preceding scene, Jesus was acting as God and doing divine activity. But so why would Jesus then need to retreat away to go talk to himself? It seems a little odd and, and something that Mark and Matthew, Luke and John all seem to handle with delicacy, trying to consider Christ as the Son of God, who is also the suffering Son of Man. It's amazing how much content, how much theology, how much life is packed into 10 verses. Though my sermon can't be an hour, I would love for it to be, but I know that I can't even talk that long. 
I would like for us to focus in for just a few minutes on these last few verses. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and he went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. Don't these few verses have a strong reminiscence of the Easter story? It's the day after the Sabbath, so it's Sunday morning. It's early in the morning, and Jesus rises before everyone else. The disciples are distressed at his absence, and he goes before them towards the Sea of Galilee. Eugene Boring suggests that this is not meant as an allegory of the resurrection, but that all the events in Jesus' ministry in the book of Mark are written in light of Easter. Boring, in his commentary on Mark, goes on to say, pointing out that this is the first instance of the disciples misunderstanding Jesus, which happens over and over and over. There is this idea that the people who should know who Jesus is do not, and those who shouldn't know do. This theme is prominent throughout the book. The disciples want Jesus to stay, but he is determined to go elsewhere. In these verses, they want more miracles, and he wants to preach. They want to go back to Capernaum where they've enjoyed previous success, and he wants to go ahead on the mission that awaits him elsewhere. And herein lies the text, the title for today's sermon, Searching for Jesus. The disciples and those who witnesses Jesus' divine activity the previous day want more of the same. They saw Jesus act in a specific way, and they think he needs to repeat this activity. They saw all these healings. They saw all these miracles. And they never stopped to think, is there something more that Jesus wants to offer? They were kind of miracle mongers who only perceived Jesus as a magician or divine man. However, Jesus is not some stereotypical great man. He has no desire to bask in the favor of those who marvel at his achievements. He is the proclaimer and the agent of the universal reign of God that is dawning as the kingdom of heaven is coming near. He knows that preaching has priority over miracles in his life. This is why he says, It was for this reason I have come. And at the end of Mark's gospel, the church is commissioned to continue preaching. In the previous chapter, the disciples have been called to follow. But in these verses, Jesus has gone on elsewhere, and they are still behind in Capernaum. Even more, when they find Jesus, they want him to follow them back to Capernaum. But Jesus is propelled elsewhere. Cannot the same activity of the disciples be said of us today? We often think of the disciples as simple-minded and unable to grasp what Jesus is trying to do. Why don't they get it? We just... That you're with Jesus. Y'all should figure this out. But what a pleasure 2,000 years of high insight is, is it not? The irony is, as we chastise the disciples for their short-sightedness, we do the same thing. Whereas we are searching for other things in our whole life, searching for love, searching for the right house, searching for the best position at our job, we totally expect that Jesus is supposed to be where we want him to be. As if to say, there's no reason to search for God. We expect that God has to act in our lives in the ways that God has always acted in our lives, especially those which we first encountered with the divine. We as Christians have become expectant and entitled, believing that we have the market cornered on being able to dictate divine activity. But friends, if there is one thing you'll hear me say at nauseum as a preacher, it is that God is God and we are not. 
I know it sounds very simple. I had to go to seminary to learn that. But God is God, and we are not. God is bigger than our own limitations that we try to place on divine activity. God wants to show us new things, teach us about new places, take us to new possibilities. But it's not up to God to work out our faith for us. As we see in the New Testament, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what typically happens. This is what happens in my own life. We come into a personal relationship with God in some particular fashion. Perhaps it was serving in an outreach ministry or an overseas mission trip or a youth retreat where God was just so present on the mountaintop experience. For me, it was worship, worship services. I first began meeting God and experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit in a real and amazing way through worship services. The problem was I always went back to these worship services expecting to experience God in the exact same way, as if God had to show up the way I wanted God to show up. So when I stopped feeling God, I began to think that God was not near me anymore. God didn't care. God was angry with me. God wasn't listening. I had done something wrong to anger God, and so no longer was the divine interested in my needs. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt the presence of God in such a strong way in the past, but recently or at another point felt distant or absent from God? When you were a youth or a young adult or a previous church or different phase in life, you were just walking hand in hand with Jesus, you know, footprints on the beach style where he's picking us up and carrying us, that me and Jesus are BFFs, where it's just, I've never been closer to God than in this time. And then something changes. You can't name what it is, but all of a sudden it's not the way it used to be. It was not until some years later that I found a thread in scripture that is echoed in today's text that has helped me forever reshape my faith. Why is it that we can search for everything else in life, but always expect God to search for us? Why is it that God has to not only save us through the work of Jesus, but then we expect that God should do our sanctifying for us also? Faith takes work to be full. And one of the main features of this work is searching for God. We are justified by God's activity, and we are sanctified by God's grace that compels us to strengthen our own faith. In Matthew, we hear, ask and it will be given to you, seek and ye shall find. Amos tells us, seek God and live. First Chronicles says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. The psalmist says, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Over and over throughout the Bible, we see this imperative to seek, to search, to actively look. And the key for us, like the disciples, is not to always expect God to do the same thing God has always done, because our God is on the move. Our God wants to take us to new places. Our God wants us to know more and to know God more. If we but use our faculties to stop telling God who God has to be and instead turn our efforts to searching for God in new ways and unknown places, we might just yet experience God anew. So may we be a people who search for Jesus at all times and in all places. May we treat our devotional disciplines with the utmost seriousness. 
And may we fully live into the lives that God would have us live. It's easy to fall back into old routines. It's easy to do what we've always done and then blame God when things are not the way we want them to be. God is inviting us, beckoning us, calling us to continue searching and seeking in new ways. As we often sing from Oliver Holden's classic 18th century hymn, they who seek the throne of grace find that throne in every place. If we live a life of prayer, God is present everywhere. In our sickness and in our health, in our want or in our wealth, if we look to God in prayer, God is present everywhere. When our earthly comforts fail, when the woes of life prevail, tis the time for earnest prayer. God is present everywhere. Then my soul in every strait to thy Father come and wait. He will answer every prayer. God is present everywhere. Let it be so. Amen.